With the 33rd anniversary of the catastrophic Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Ukraine coming up on April 26, you're going to hear a lot of so-called experts take to the media and claim that it was really no big deal, fewer than 100 people died, not a lot of people got sick, yada, yada, yada. All of it with the intention of convincing you that nuclear is safe, radiation is really good for you, and nukes are necessary, so get over yourself. But then you hear a genuine expert, one who did her research on the ground through 27 Eastern European medical archives and has the footnotes to prove everything she says. And she tells you... What they weren't saying is that they designed a study for the study to find only catastrophic results. And when they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million normally get it. Suddenly in a small area of northern Ukraine, they had 20 kids and the Soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies. They didn't believe that this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids. They brought them home to have examined And sure enough, they found that these were cancers. But then in their report, they said, we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children, and we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was hard evidence, and they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. Well, when you hear Kate Brown say something like that, and so much more, you get a pretty clear picture of the nuclear cover-up, which wants us to not know that we are all sitting in a single seat, a seat that the entire world shares. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a blockbuster interview with Kate Brown, author of the just-published book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Kate did the research and got the goods on the whole nuclear playbook that has semi-successfully hidden the true impact of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster's continuing devastation to people and the environment. It is a stunning tale, well told by a brilliant woman, and we're honored to have her on this second Chernobyl-focused nuclear hot seat. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than is in the unredacted Mueller report. Or so we think. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. 
In the U.S., senators from both parties on Tuesday, April 2nd, asked Energy Secretary Rick Perry for details about recent approvals for companies to share nuclear energy information with Saudi Arabia. The lawmakers expressed concern about possible development of atomic weapons. The Trump administration has been quietly negotiating a deal that would potentially help Saudi Arabia build two reactors. And indeed, new satellite imagery shows the construction of an experimental reactor making, quote, expeditious progress on the outskirts of Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. The International Atomic Energy Agency estimated that the reactor could be complete in nine months to a year. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said last year that, quote, without a doubt, if Iran developed a nuclear bomb, we will follow suit as soon as possible, end quote. And it's well known that because of the plutonium in the waste stream, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. That's how India and Pakistan both got their bombs. Lots of push by the nuclear industry to get more of those clean air and sustainable energy funds that they don't deserve. Excellent article in Politico.com, How Nuclear Plants Are Gaming Climate Change Rules. We'll link to that. Also an article by Harvey Wasserman on America's Hole-in-the-Head Nuclear Suicide Pact gets court approval. And know that the nuclear bailouts continue as an Ohio bill would create a clean air fund that would benefit nuclear while excluding wind and solar. We're either through the looking glass or into Superman's bizarro world. In Nebraska, crews with Omaha Public Power District have been working to protect the shuttered Fort Calhoun nuclear station from the rising Missouri River. Remember, it still has all that spent fuel on site, and it's still not out of flood season. Exelon, which owns and operates the Three Mile Island nuclear energy facility near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, recently filed the Post-Shutdown Decommissioning Activities Report, Plans for the plant after its final shutdown, which is currently scheduled for September 2019. Happy birthday to me. To learn more about the battle over the bailout in Pennsylvania, listen to Nuclear Hot Seat number 407 from April 9, 2019, which is where I have an interview with Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert. Over to Japan, where the government and Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, are set to launch full-scale probes of the inside of the three nuclear reactors at the disaster-stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. However, the interior of the number two reactor, which is most likely to be the first to go through the debris removal process, has turned out to be different from what had originally been expected. Well, maybe by you, but not my Simply Info. I'll continue. Akira Ono, who leads the decommissioning project, said, At present, it is difficult to clearly say we are going to remove all fuel debris. And recent findings suggest that the sediment that TEPCO came in contact with in the survey was not the main nuclear fuel debris it was looking for. Many speculate that the surface of the sediment may mainly consist of metals, including cladding tubes that were used to cover nuclear fuels. Again, this is what Simply Info has been saying as far back as 2015, when they wrote in a report, All scenario timelines we ran concluded Unit 2 had a full meltdown and that the molten fuel likely burned deep down into the basement concrete or completely through it down to the soil below the reactor building. 
TEPCO was dancing the happy dance when Japan passed a new visa program and said that they will accept foreign workers hired under the new visa program to help decommission Fukushima Daiichi. The next day, April 19, Japanese Justice Minister Takashi Yamashita outlined restrictions pertaining to the visa program that said foreign nationals will not be allowed to work in Japan if their main task is to do decontamination work at the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. In a big PR push, Japan has been seeking to boost food exports from Fukushima by engaging tourists and foreign governments. Tourists by inviting them to come to Fukushima and taste the food, eat amply of it. And with foreign governments, they are seeking regular and sustained engagement to prove the safety of exports from the region. But one of their foreign government so-called engagements failed because on April 12, the World Trade Organization made a decision to rule in favor of Seoul, South Korea's import restrictions on Japanese seafood in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. It said it would keep the ban in place going forward and that the Seoul government's protective measures are not unfair trade restrictions and do not fall into the category of arbitrary discrimination. South Korea is one of about 50 countries that have maintained bans on imports since the nuclear disaster. Great news from the EU. On Thursday, March 28th, the European Parliament voted to exclude nuclear power from receiving a green stamp of approval on financial markets. The vote aims to divert investments away from polluting industries and into clean technologies. Beatrice Finn, the Nobel Peace Prize-winning head of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, has announced that Salt Lake City just joined ICANN in calling on the U.S. government to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is put forth by the United Nations. And to commemorate a combination of Earth Day and the anniversary of Chernobyl, there will be in Greenland demonstrations against uranium mines on April 25th. In Brussels, Belgium, on the 26th of April, there will be a protest calling for the end of nuclear power in that country. And on April 27, in the UK, activists will gather at the Springfields nuclear site in Lancaster to highlight the need for action on the twin fronts of new nuclear generation and radioactive waste disposal. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists just published an article entitled Why the Financial Community Should Work to Prevent the Market and Economic Shocks of a Nuclear Incident. Not the devastation to life, health, and the environment. No, 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 no. Let's worry about your stock portfolios. The article by a Wall Street insider, David Epstein, states The risks of a nuclear incident are something of an elephant in the room in the financial and business communities. As stewards of the capital markets and economy, bankers, money managers, regulators, and leaders of the broader business community should pursue a dual track, working to prevent nuclear incidents while simultaneously preparing for the market and economic shocks that will undoubtedly ensue if prevention efforts fail. To demonstrate how brain-dead this enormous article is, a single point. Epstein writes reassuringly, There is now a much higher probability that any nuclear incident the world sees will be a limited one that kills less than 1% of the global population. 
In such a scenario, the broader public clearly is going to care about what is happening to its investment portfolios and companies and to the overall economy. Let's put this in perspective. If the world population, as reported, is currently 7.6 billion people, then we're talking about 76 million people dead from a single nuclear incident. If that were all in a single country, it would be the 20th largest country in the world, smack between Thailand and Turkey. And this guy's worried about investment portfolios? Left-brained, brain-dead, and totally divorced from what life is all about. And there's much more in this article, but I'll leave it for you to take a look at it. Because David Epstein and Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, it has come to my horrified attention that the link to the donate function for Nuclear Hot Seat, the one that I've been sending out in the weekly email notifications, has been broken, despite ongoing attempts to fix it. Thanks a lot, PayPal. This has been a major oops, as the show needs your donations in order to meet its expenses and keep going, and we've been running a little thin. The problem of the errant link has now been fixed, and my apologies to any of you who were frustrated in your attempts to donate and finding no way to do it. If you click on the donate link in the email, it will now take you to the proper site. And of course, you can always do so directly through Nuclear Hot Seat. But did I just say email? Yes. If you would like weekly email notice of Nuclear Hot Seat, including links to the web page and audio and a brief pricey of what's included, you can sign up for this on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Just scroll down and look for the yellow opt-in box and fill it out. That way, you will get the notification of each week's program just as soon as it posts. Now, if you're not fond of even one email a week from me, we still make it easier for you to help support the show. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can make a one-time donation or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you on a budget, let's face it, so many are, there's also a big green donate button that, with just a few simple clicks, allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, the same as an iced mocha chocolata something or another from your neighborhood barista. That's where our monthly operating budget comes from, and we would really appreciate your help in us hitting it. So whatever you have done to help and whatever you can do to help, know that you have my deepest gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Nuclear disasters seem to come in clusters, and we're just about to conclude this year's anniversary alley of the nuclear power industry's all-time hits, Fukushima on March 11, Three Mile Island on March 28, and in just a few days, Chernobyl on April 26. Last week, we presented the background on Chernobyl in Nuclear Hot Seat number 408, which is available on the website. This week, I'm thrilled by my interviewee because her new book provides a missing link in our understanding not only of Chernobyl, but the impact of nuclear radiation on the planet and the environment. 
And as I've mentioned before, she backs everything up with sobering footnotes, as much information as you could possibly want or need. Kate Brown is the author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. She is an historian of environmental and nuclear history at MIT and the author of Plutopia, which won seven awards. Her research has been funded by the American Academy in Berlin and by Carnegie and Guggenheim Fellowships. In this season of Chernobyl Commemorations, she made time in her daunting schedule to talk with us about what's in this new book. We spoke on Monday, April 15, 2019. Kate Brown, I am so thrilled to have you here today on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be here, Libby. Thanks for inviting me. Figuring out the truth about Chernobyl was an enormous, complex, mind-boggling project. What drew you to this area of research in the first place, and how did you get started? Originally, I was interested in the nuclear security state, and so I started, uh, I wrote a book called Plutopia about the first two cities in the world to produce plutonium. And while I was working that story, these I wasn't interested in, in health or environment, but these farmers who lived downwind and downriver from these two plutonium plants, the Soviet and American one, uh, were telling me about their health problems. And they sounded very similar, strange health problems, and similar across this huge divide between the Siberian uh, Soviet site and the Eastern Washington American site. And I, so I started working to try to figure out what that meant, if they were right, what scientists thought. And I got a little bit into that story when I, in that book, Plutopia, but I felt like I didn't really get the story. So this is almost a sequel. Uh, and I thought, well, Chernobyl was a civilian site. It wasn't a military site, so it was more, more open. It, it exposed far more people. And it was later. It was in the 1980s rather than the, you know, the 40s and 50s and 60s. So I went into the archives and found this sort of Klondike of health records. In many points, I was the first one to check out these records. It was pretty amazing. They went, you know, right after the accident, they went in and they, and they took measurements. They measured air and water and soils, but they also measured people's bodies and food. And we don't really have many records like that, even though, you know, in the 20th century history, we've had a lot of nuclear episodes and a lot of nuclear spills and intentional emissions, but we haven't had too many people curious about what happens next when all this radioactivity goes into the environment. So the Soviets did that and they kept pretty good records you know, in the five years after the accident. Those records, you know, I, I argue in my book, Manual for Survival, are pretty unique. They are, because it seems like that five-year period of time is what gets ignored primarily. It happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It took five years before that longevity study was put into place. And no attempt was made after Three Mile Island as well. And of course, there's been no real long-term study after Fukushima, though that's just getting started. From your perspective, why was this data not used to put forth the truth about what was happening as a result of Chernobyl, meaning the health impact of the radiation on people? At first, it was a censored topic. So the Soviets you know, set out these rules. They said, you know, we don't want anyone talking about levels of radioactivity, health problems. You know, they had a whole list of sort of no-go areas for Soviet employees and people in, in hospitals and who were dealing with cleanup of the accident. And then that story broke into the press around 1989, 1990. 
And the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine, which had the most, most impacted by the accident, came forward and said, you know, we can't handle this problem anymore. We need help. And they appealed to the UN for help internationally. And that got the leaders in Moscow really nervous. They had been saying all along, this isn't really a problem. The doses aren't that high. Everybody can just you know, stay the course. And increasingly, I see in the, in the classified records that the, the leaders, um, especially the people in, in the public health field in Ukraine and Belarus were getting increasingly nervous. And more and more researchers were coming forward saying, you know, we see here a big problem. I mean, by 1990, uh, a KGB general who was a medical doctor who ran a clinic in Kiev and he had 2,000 patients who had been exposed to Chernobyl. And he writes and he says, you know, nobody's got a study like mine. I have the best equipped hospital. I have doctors who can actually know how much exposure their patients got. And after our, you know, four years of study, we have found that Perfectly healthy people, when exposed chronically to low doses of radiation, have a whole host of health problems, and he lists them. And he recommended, this is a KGB general, he recommended that the zone of alienation, the, the, the area that should be depopulated, be extended from 30 kilometers to 120, and that would have gone right up to the beautiful ancient city of Kiev where he lived. That's how alarmed he was. So why didn't this story come into the public? The Soviet Union fell apart. It was starting to fall apart in 90 collapsed completely in 1991. And the Soviet leaders, to try to stave off this problem, asked first the World Health Organization to come in and do an independent assessment with foreign experts. World Health sent in three guys. They traveled around for about 10 days. They came out and they said, you know, we don't see any problems. We think you could double or triple the permissible dose and everybody would be fine. No one believed that study. You know, what can three guys do in, in 10 days? So then the Soviet leaders asked the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in, and they brought in more scientists, between 100 and 200 scientists. They worked for about 18 months. They looked at levels of radioactivity. They had a medical section that looked at about 1,200 people, very small study, when you consider that 4.5 million were exposed. And they came away and said, you know, we did this study. We see a lot of illness in this area, but nothing from exposure to Chernobyl contaminants, uh, and we don't expect to see any detectable health problems in the future other than a few cases of childhood thyroid cancer. What they weren't saying is that they designed a study for the study to find only catastrophic results. And when they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million uh, normally get it. Suddenly in a small area of northern Ukraine, they had 20 kids and the Soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies. They didn't believe that, that they, this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids. They brought them home to have examined. And sure enough, they found that these were cancers. But then in their report, they said, we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children. And we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was, you know, hard evidence. And they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. Now, what that report did, that report that said no effects, we don't expect to find any effects in the future. Right at that time, the UN was trying to raise a billion dollars in today's fund to do two things, carry out a long-term medical study akin to the study of Japanese bomb survivors, but of Chernobyl survivors. And, and this is a very different kind of nuclear event. These are 
Hiroshima was counted as one big x-ray that lasted less than a second. Chernobyl exposures were long-term chronic exposures of low doses. And those exposures are, are actually far more common. And then going forward in the future, humans are, are far more likely to have a Chernobyl set of exposures and a Hiroshima bomb set of exposures. So all kinds of scientists said we need to do a long-term study. And then the second thing this money was going to be for was to move 200,000 people who were sitting in highly contaminated land. But after that UN report came out that said, we don't see any Chernobyl health effects and we don't expect to in the future, that pledge drive went nowhere. They raised you know, less than $6 million. Why do you think the IAEA and before that, the scientists who came in were all minimizing the impact of Chernobyl? Well, all I could think of is that at the same time in the 1990s, the big nuclear powers, US, UK, France, and Russia were facing lawsuits from their own exposure, their own testing and production of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Uh, you know, the French had blown up nuclear weapons in Algeria and in the South Pacific. The British had blown up weapons in the South Pacific and in Australia. The Americans in the Marshall Islands and in, in the American heartland in Nevada. And the Soviets in Kazakhstan and in the Arctic. And so all kinds of people who had, whether they're atomic veterans of, in battlefield conditions or whether they were people who had been injected with radioactive isotopes for you know, experiments or people who had lived downwind of or downriver of nuclear production facilities or if they lived anywhere where the fallout landed, were starting to sue their governments about their exposures and what they felt were the resulting health problems. So if you could say Chernobyl was the worst nuclear disaster in human history, and only 33 to 54 people died, then you could make these lawsuits go away. And that's indeed what happened in the course of the 1990s and the early 2000s, as these lawsuits got no traction, in, in part because of this Chernobyl narrative. Do you think it was a conscious decision on the part of the World Health Organization, the IAEA, UNSCEAR, and the various governments involved to minimize this for that reason, or was it a consequence of them going on another train of thought? You know, like a, a lot of people are, are reporting that my book talks about a big conspiracy theory, and I don't use that word, and I, I don't think that's what was happening. I think that these scientists who had been working kind of in a bubble for a long time with the Hiroshima data, felt that they knew exactly, you know, what they call the Hiroshima studies, the gold standard. They felt like they had a real handle on what radiation medicine was and that what the thresholds were for exposure. And when the Chernobyl, when people started talking about this public health epidemic in the Chernobyl territories, and, and we're not just talking about cancers, what the records show is that people started to feel pretty unwell almost right after the accident. The official tally is that 300 mostly firemen and nuclear plant operators were hospitalized. The count that comes out of the archives is 40,000 people were hospitalized in the summer after the accident, many of whom were children. And they didn't feel well, you know, sort of like respiratory infections, uh, chronic sore throats, large thyroids, thyroid problems, problems with their endocrine system, immune system disorders. Pregnant women had all kinds of complications at childbirth, increasing frequencies of birth defects and spontaneous miscarriages. And then after about 18 months, cancers kick in, leukemias, and then later thyroid cancers among children, and other kinds of cancers start to climb. 
And so when this story came out, I think the international community of scientists, it didn't make sense to them. They had a great deal of faith in their established science. And these results that were coming in confounded them. They said, sure, there might be thyroid cancer among kids, but only after maybe 10 years, not after three or four years. And they just couldn't believe the evidence as it was presented to them. And if they were to believe it, they would have had to radically alter many of the regulations for operating nuclear power plants and running nuclear bomb factories. And we would have had to rethink, I think, pretty drastically our whole nuclear enterprise. And of course, that was something that they wished to avoid. Now, scientists from Ukraine and Belarus noisily rejected the IAEA's dose estimates and the results of it, and they charged that the IAEA investigators overlooked hotspots of radiation, the resuspension of plutonium particles kicked up by dose, and the ingestion of radioactive particles. They said the people's doses were much higher than the IAEA estimated. What did all of these protestations by scientists from the Ukraine and Belarus lead to? Unfortunately, it didn't go very far. You know, this is at a time, and this is where history really plays an important role, when the Soviet Union was falling apart. And, and everything that was Soviet, uh, whether it was politics or economics or science and medicine, was considered bad, retrograde, corrupt, somehow majorly flawed. And so when these doctors came forward and said this, um, they had been living with this situation for five years. They had been working closely on the ground with patients. You know, what we find in the Chernobyl territories is that one of the charges is, well, when, when you look for disease, you're sure to find it. And there are, there are all these, you know, extra medical examinations of these people. But in fact, uh, hospitals are running at 50, 60 percent because the doctors were the first to leave these territories. They saw what was going on and they, they wanted to get out of there with their families intact. But the people who did stay were quite committed and they presented their evidence. They had case control studies. They had observational studies. They had all kinds of data that they presented, including biopsies, you know, actual physical material to, to hand to the Western researchers. And it was just very, very easy to discredit them, to say, well, you know, these Soviets, they don't have standardized Western protocols. They have very poor equipment. They have really sketchy knowledge. And, you know, these guys mostly only spoke, you know, Ukrainian or Russian. They didn't speak English. They weren't very facile. Um, when they went to international conferences, they had trouble communicating. They had trouble presenting their works. So um, it was really easy to let the triumphalist democracy and capitalism have won rhetoric, win out. And lots of people thought that was a quite sensible dance to take. Much of your research was done looking at reports from small clinics and doctors who were on the ground in the area around Chernobyl and reporting honestly. And they were aided and abetted by what can be called citizen scientists, meaning people on the ground who said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I've got to do something about it. What were some of the more remarkable steps taken by the people who were living in that zone to try and bring their information to the awareness of scientists in higher places, say from the West, who could possibly make a difference in the narrative. One thing I was on the lookout as I worked my way through 27 archives were everyday heroes, people who, you know, their bosses told them to shut up or not to say anything or to, you know, sort of massage the numbers. 
and there were people who just refused to do that. Uh, and so there was one woman who, she was a, a physicist working at university in Kiev, and her husband was a civil defense guy. And so they had a Geiger counter. And they went around, and, you know, they heard about the accident, and they went around just in the courtyard of their building in Kiev, and they found these really radioactive spots in different parts of the lawn. And they, they went and they found these little tiny grains of sand that were fiercely radioactive. And these were the hot particles that everybody's talking about. And this woman, Natalia Lazitskaya, gathered these hot particles, measured the counts of radioactivity coming from them. And as she ran her calculations, and, she, and then she would come back and measure the, you know, the amount of decay. And then so she'd figure out what isotope it was by how quickly it was decaying. And she gathered you know, all these different radioactive isotopes and figured out what the whole cocktail was coming from the plant. And very early on, she figured out that this was not, as we were told, a chemical and a steam explosion, but in fact, a nuclear explosion at the plant, that nuclear power plants actually do blow up like nuclear bombs. And she wrote this whole report and sent it to her government to say, you know, by the way, I want you to know that I've run these calculations and this is what I found out. And, you know, mind you, she doesn't have a big institute. She doesn't have a lot of complicated machinery. She doesn't have a whole staff. She's just doing this, you know, in her little tiny two-bedroom apartment in Kiev with a Geiger counter. And in 2016, the this institute in Sweden did, in fact, affirm what she'd been saying for 20 years, that this was a nuclear explosion. And Lizitsky tried to get word out to the West that there were real problems and that there was much higher counts of radioactivity than the Soviets were letting on. And so in 1988, there was an international conference in Kiev. And so she disguised herself as a cleaning lady, got a bucket and a mop and went into the conference and, and got into the closed conference that way by pretending she was you know, just there to clean. And then she went up to a Western researcher, Robert Gale, and tried to give him a, a stack of her research that she had gathered. And Gail probably never knew this was happening because four KGB agents swept her up, grabbed her by, every, by each elbow, and led her out the back alley. But there are all kinds of people like that. Another guy, he could not get his leaders in Kiev to understand that even though his region had pretty low counts of radioactivity, the milk was off the charts, over permissible levels. And three quarters of the milk was over permissible levels of radioactivity for the time. He went and he knocked on doors and he talked to people and he showed them all his records. He finally got 70 liters of milk and sent it to Kiev in a truck and said, you check this milk and tell me what you think. And then once he had done that, actually having the physical nutritious milk, you know, in front of them that was indeed above permissible levels of radioactivity, they finally determined that this area should have special shipments of clean food. So there's people like that throughout the story. It's really pretty wonderful. It doesn't take many people to quietly resist or be committed to doing their job. That guy with the milk, Alexander Komov, he just wrote me the other day. He says, I'm no hero. I was just doing my job. And I think those are wonderful stories, and, and these people should be recognized as heroes alongside the firemen and the miners and the nuclear plant operators that risked their lives to contain this accident. You mentioned Dr. Robert Gale, who was an American. What larger role did he play in the Chernobyl disaster and other nuclear disasters that followed? Well, he went there, you know, very altruistically to um, try to help out. And because he had connections with Armin Hammer, the Soviets were saying no, no, no to all the capitalist countries. But Armin Hammer was a very influential person. And he appealed directly to Gorbachev. And Gorbachev said, yes, Gail can come in. And Gail had a, a new sort of 
what he thought would help the firemen overcome radiation sickness and he wanted to try it out on them and so he brought that along and the Soviets were both nervous about this new untested drug it had been tested on monkeys but not humans and also excited maybe it would work and so Gail and a Soviet doctor Varobyov tried it on themselves first and then they tried it out on the firemen and unfortunately it did not help the firemen but then after that Gail took to the podium and he was the first person speaking from within the Soviet Union about the medical disaster as he witnessed it. And he really became the sort of spokesman or the, or the, the face of not just this nuclear disaster, Chernobyl disaster, but he went on to um, a year later in Brazil, there was a smaller nuclear accident in Guyana, Brazil. He, he showed up there. He started to testify for different lawsuits about nuclear power plants and things like that. So he became a real spokesman, having started out as a cancer doctor, somebody who specialized in leukemia. There's an enormous disparity in reports on the number of people who died as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. The what I call the unholy trio of the IAEA, the World Health Organization, and UNSCEAR have an echo chamber that repeats often that there are only, and the number varies depending on the source, but approximately 54 immediate deaths in the affected area and maybe between 4,000 and 6,000 cases depending on the source of thyroid cancers as a result. On the other hand, we have the book Chernobyl Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment by Yablokov, Nesterenko, and Nesterenko that concludes that as of 15 years ago, when it was published in 2004, there were just under a million premature deaths as a result of the radioactivity released. Why this disparity and which, in your opinion, is closer to the truth? Well, the disparity is because you cannot see, taste, feel, or touch radioactivity unless you get a big dose, an acute dose, the effects, the medical effects show up much later, whether it's months or years or or decades. So it's very difficult to pin radioactive contaminants to a particular illness, especially when the illness is more subtle and not acute. And, And most of radiation medicine is focused on acute effects that amount to cancer and death. So everybody wants a death count, and the uncertainties in the death count are huge. And the way they come to those numbers are through a series of estimations and extrapolations. So the first thing to be estimated is the dose, how much do we think people got, and they do that by reconstructing the jet streams, you know, the weather, how much rain came down, taking live measurements on the ground, and then estimating you know, what people were eating, where they were standing, how much time they spent outside. All of this is you know, relatively, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in these calculations. And then they extrapolate, and this is what the, you know, the unscare scientists would do, is, is extrapolate that dose against what the Hiroshima survivors got. And with that you know, extrapolation, they'd say, so therefore we expect to see 4,000 cancers in the future or something like that. The problem with extrapolating from Hiroshima is Hiroshima is a very different nuclear event. You know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, two bombs went off. They count the, the less than a second flash of radioactivity that came from the bombs dropping. They do not calculate in that equation of the Japanese bomb survivors, the fallout from radioactivity. That was called at the time in the 40s residual radiation the Americans, you know, with General Leslie Grove, who's the head of the Manhattan Project, he was really nervous that the Americans had spent 
millions of dollars building nuclear weapons, and they were worried that they, nuclear weapons were going to go the way of chemical weapons, that they're going to be determined to be an illegal form of warfare because it didn't just blow up you know, and kill somebody right away, but it continued to kill people later on and maim and harm people. And that was considered, you know, just like chemical weapons, unfair. So they emphasized, you know, these people died, these people who died from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs died from burns, just regular thermal burns that anybody could die of in conventional warfare. And they tried to emphasize this this is like a conventional explosion. So they wanted to renounce that there were long-standing, you know, that, that there was residual radiation, that radioactivity remained in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the Japanese were reporting this strange atomic poison that kills people who were not there in those cities when the bomb went off, but still came in later and got sick. And some of them died. Like, How did that happen? There must be something lingering. But none of that residual radiation or, or what we can now call fallout was considered in the dose. The other problem with the Hiroshima uh, studies is that they began five years after the explosions. And so they asked people, where were you standing? You know, 1945 when the bomb went off and people recalled to the best of their knowledge. And as we know from oral history that human memories are pretty dodgy, especially in in traumatic situations. So they did a dose reconstruction. Japanese scientists at the time actually took measurements. Uh, Historian Susan Lindy talks about this. They took their own measurements. They recorded pretty high levels of radioactivity. The Americans, when they came in and occupied Japan after the war, confiscated those records. And we don't know where they are to this day. So the Hiroshima records are dose reconstructions, they're estimates, they're guesses about how much of a dose people got. And then the third problem with the Hiroshima studies, or the Japanese lifespan studies as they're formally called, is that the Americans controlled these studies until the 1970s. And as I said, the Americans had a political interest in minimizing the impact of nuclear warfare, of atomic warfare. What influence, if any, did this uncertainty and the minimization of health impact information from Chernobyl, and also what you're saying about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, have on our understanding of the medical impact at Three Mile Island, which happened before Chernobyl, and Fukushima, which happened after Chernobyl? In both the Three Mile Island case and the Fukushima case, as with the Chernobyl cases, you know, because scientists working, you know, from the Japanese lifespan data are saying, you know, these doses are too low. We estimate there's going to be no problems. We really don't have uh, studies. You know, we don't have serious studies. You know, that we haven't put in the time and money and commitment to do a long-term epidemiological study on low doses, chronic low doses of radioactivity. And, you know, that is the scenario that going forward in the future, we're most likely to experience. We're probably going to have more nuclear accidents, more nuclear spills. We encounter man-made radioactivity in the environment almost every day. And so we should know that, and we should demand that our scientific establishment and that our governments do those studies finally. And that's the, where, where I end. You know, I, I mean, we see some troubling data coming out of places where people have been exposed to man-made radioactivity, but those are just correlations. What we need is to determine you know, causation. And, and to do that, we, we finally need to do some real studies. Do you think it's intentional that these studies have not been done? I cannot impugn what other people's motives or intentions are. But I think it's troubling that we haven't done them. I can say that for sure. 
Do you think that the experts who deny or minimize any health harm from Chernobyl's radiation, not necessarily the bureaucrats or the politicians, but the scientists, actually believe their own denials of radiation's health impact? Oh, I'm sure they, yes. I mean, I, they believe in their science and, and they really hold to their science. But I think what's amazing about radiation medicine is that really since the end of the Cold War, there have been amazing developments and discoveries in the field of biology and medicine. We've learned about microbiome. We've learned about how sensitive um, neurological systems are. We've learned about inner cell communication and how sensitive they are and epigenetic effects that can be passed down, you know, basically, you know, almost acquired traits or patterns of cell communication that can be passed down from parent to offspring. And very few of those insights have translated into radiation medicine. You know, we sort of need an update of that field. Since the publication of your book, what has been the response in the media? And have you faced any significant pushback from World Health Organization, International Atomic Energy Agency, UNSCEAR, or any of the governments or individuals that you reference in the book? No, I have not had pushback from those agencies. I've had some critical reviews, and, and that's fair enough. And sometimes um, there's been reviewers who are, you know, industry scientists or, or, or somehow make their money from, you know, sort of promoting nuclear energy. And, and I don't think that's entirely fair of publications to ask, you know, sort of pro-nuclear spokespeople and scientists to review my book, because I don't think you can do, uh, give an impartial review for that. But uh, most of the reviews have been very good when they're an impartial reviewer. Do you think that the radiological impact of Chernobyl on the health of people in Ukraine, Belarus, and really around the world will ever be determined beyond the shadow of scientific doubt? Oh, I hope so. I hope one day we, we will have certain knowledge, just like for a long time we didn't know, you know, it was debated and fiercely fought over arsenic, lead, tobacco, DDT x-raying fetuses in vivo like all of these things were debated fiercely debated you know that when scientists first discovered these problems fiercely resisted usually by people who stood to make money from selling products that were damaging to human health now we know for sure that cigarettes cause cancer we know for sure that lead causes all kinds of developmental problems among children especially we know that arsenic is poison and so I think one day we'll, we'll have more certain understanding of what low doses of radioactivity does to human health. If you were to sum up the message of your book and all the research that went into it and present that message to the world, what would you want to say? I guess I'd want to say that Chernobyl is most often described as an accident, and I think that's, that's wrong, that an accident implies that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And people definitely want closure when there's been a bad accident or any kind of trauma. But I think that's doing this event a disservice. What I found as I researched is that that area in northern Ukraine was contaminated with radioactive fallout from nuclear testing before they even built the Chernobyl plant. The people who lived near that swamp, farmers, had 10 to 30 times more radioactive cesium in their bodies and people who lived in Minsk and Kiev. And I find that after the accident, the, the big Chernobyl accident in 1986, there are other smaller nuclear accidents, another pretty big one, a pretty big explosion in 1991 at that same Chernobyl plant. Um, I was visiting, following biologists who work in the zone 
um, in 2017 and, and my Geiger counter was screeching and I asked them what's going on. And they said, oh, we had a fire here about eight months ago and, and that burned the leaf litter and limbs and, and trees and volatilized the radioactivity that was stored there. That was another nuclear event. It was probably something that would have been rated a, you know, level five on the IEA ratings chart, but nobody paid attention to it. And so you know, I think what we need to do is think of Chernobyl as an acceleration on a timeline of radioactive emissions that have occurred since 1945 and that have sort of peppered and saturated, especially the northern hemisphere of our globe. And if we look at other statistics, uh, those that record rates of cancer, rates of birth defects, male sperm counts, which have dropped in half in the northern hemisphere since 1945, Cancer rates that have you know steadily climbed, especially thyroid cancer, has not stopped climbing. Childhood cancers used to be a medical rarity; they no longer are. I think that again, that's a, that's a correlation. But I think we should get a lot more curious and ask our leaders and ask the scientific establishment to figure out what's going on. Why is there why is there a cancer epidemic? Um, why are male sperm counts dropped in half since '45? And that's, I think, what I'd like readers to leave with at the end of my book. One final thought. What, if any, steps are in place to allow you to address the United Nations with this information? And what might we do to help speed that along? Well, I think we should ask for another pledge drive and we should ask for you know, countries that are, especially countries that are nuclear powers and have nuclear reactors. And certainly, as lots of countries gear up for a, a new nuclear renaissance, we should ask to have that study done and paid for by you know every country that's building nuclear power plants to contribute for that study so that we can finally know if this is a safe enterprise that we're pointing towards in the future. Kate Brown, your book is a fabulous read. It's like a detective story or a murder mystery on a global level. It is, I think, necessary reading for anyone who really wants to understand what the issue of nuclear is all about. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks a lot, Libby, for having me here. That was Kate Brown, author of Manual for Survival. If you want to understand the impact of nuclear radiation, as well as how nuke boosters did and still do their best to cover up the actual impact of Chernobyl. This is one book you want to not only read, but to keep on your bookshelf as an ultimate reference tool. It's the logical companion piece and follow-up to the Yablokov Nesterenko Jeanette Sherman book, Chernobyl, Consequences for People and the Environment, and takes the radiation discussion smack into the 21st century. Activist shout-out! Well, until you get her book, you can read an article by Kate Brown from The Guardian. Chernobyl's disastrous cover-up is a warning for the next nuclear age. We will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 409. Linda Pence-Gunter and Beyond Nuclear International have made us aware of a drama about Chernobyl children in a Havana hospital. Un traductor which means a translator, tells the true story of a Cuban professor of Russian literature who, in 1989, abruptly finds his lessons canceled and a note directing him to the local hospital, where he is told he must serve as a translator. For whom, he asks? The answer comes, the patients from Chernobyl. 
We will have a link up to Linda's article, which has more information on how to access the film. Also on the website, we'll be posting an interesting little video animation entitled How to Dismantle a Nuclear Bomb. Especially for the scientifically challenged, it's highly instructive on exactly what goes into a bomb and what it would take to destroy the pieces. While according to some of my more scientifically astute sources, it's not completely perfect when it represents the ongoing potential for bomb-grade fissile material to be repurposed into yet another bomb, it did help me understand more than I did, for which I'm grateful. Most importantly, I've learned that a nuclear bomb can be dismantled, and maybe it's not that tough. Two minutes of your time is all that it will take. NuclearHotSeat.com Episode number 409. Here's today's final thought. There are many things to admire about Kate Brown's book, but one aspect I especially revere and respect is her concise analysis of the nuclear playbook. On this show, I've done my best to point out pro-nuclear languaging, information manipulation, and semantic lies as I have encountered them. But Kate Brown nails it. She writes about the arsenal of tactics scientific administrators deployed to make the reports of health problems after Chernobyl seemingly disappear. I quote, The playbook was rich and varied. Classify data. Limit questions. Stonewall investigations. Block funding for research. Sponsor rival studies. Relegate dangers to natural risks. Draw up study protocols designed to find nothing but catastrophic events. Extrapolate and eliminate to produce numbers that hide uncertainties and guesswork, privately slander and threaten dissenting scientists, and cast doubt on known facts so that scientists must pursue expensive and duplicative investigations to prove what is clearly evident. And there you have it. That's the nuclear playbook. That's what the powers that be that protect nukes did and do. Be it in the former Soviet Union, at Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Sellafield, North St. Louis, Kudankulam, Santa Susana Field Lab, Hanford, around any nuclear reactor, anywhere there's a nuclear situation or danger, you can bet that playbook will be used to play all of us especially the media, because there's nothing more dangerous to the nuclear propaganda machine than a well-informed on nuclear reporter. So when something nuclear next happens, and it will, don't fall for the reassuring lies that you will inevitably hear cascading out through mainstream media and beyond. Because the first and loudest voices you will get a chance to hear will be from nuclear supporters claiming that you shouldn't worry your pretty little head about this. There's no immediate danger. There's no significant threat, both words used to diminish the importance. Instead, remember the playbook. Look at the languaging. Notice how hard they are pushing to make you believe their point of view to the detriment of all others. Then look around for those contradicting voices, because as I've learned from experience and so many others have as well, those are the ones most likely to prove out as true. 
And as I can identify them and get them recorded, we will have as many of those on this program as possible. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 23, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, and our friend Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, usatoday.com, Beyond Nuclear International, euobserver.com, Reuters, ClickOrlando.com, EnergyNews.us, Politico.com, ReadersupportedNews.com, and the ever-spot-on Harvey Wasserman, KETV.com, DailyEnergyInsider.com, Tri-CityHerald.com, TheHill.com, Mainichi.jp, SimplyInfo.org, FoodNavigator-Asia.com, JapanTimes.co.jp, APJJF.org, Euractive.com, BrusselsTimes.com, GreenWorld.org.uk, KoreaBizWire.com, The International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN.org, NuclearBand.us, IOL.co.za, France24.com, TheBulletin.org, The Soul Dead Cubicle Drones Who Write Press Releases for World Nuclear News, and The Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. You know you're in 123 countries on six continents, and we're still going after Antarctica. Now, if you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. Like it, share it, respond to a post, and if you leave a comment, chances are getting better all the time that I will be responding to it. Don't forget to go to the website and sign up for the weekly email, where you will get the link to the program and information about what it includes without having to search around on Facebook or remember to go to the website. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, please take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that as Russian hematologist Andrei Vorobyev wrote in his memoirs, acute radiation sickness, such as the massive doses Chernobyl liquidators received, is an accident. But chronic radiation syndrome such as we are exposed to at low doses from accidents, reactor releases, leftover fallout, and a multitude of stupid nuclear tricks. That last one's my comment, not his. Chronic radiation syndrome is a crime. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat.
It's the bomb.